1: welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Did you know that you can fix your mortgage rate forever? Well, not quite forever, but for decades at least. And there are a few perks. You won't be as affected by fluctuating interest rates, but there are also quite a few costs. We weigh up if it's worth it. And you might be familiar with the American restaurant chain, Olive Garden. Our correspondent explains that unlimited breadsticks aren't the only thing that they're getting right. But first... Five United States citizens are on their way home after years of detention in Iran. In an agreement struck between the two countries, the US also released five Iranians that it was holding. Two of them arrived in Tehran yesterday to quite an emotional reception. Of course, the swap had a price tag. The deal was sweetened by America's unfreezing of $6 billion of Iranian assets, primarily oil revenues, that were being held in South Korea. Some say that this deal will only encourage Iran to take more people hostage. Others point to a rekindling of an important relationship that until now has been almost non-existent.
2: It's a significant deal. It's a sign that the United States and Iran can deal with one another. It's happened despite the suspension of the nuclear deal and despite Iran enriching uranium to its highest levels yet.
1: Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent, who himself was detained in Iran for seven weeks in 2019.
2: But a release of hostages doesn't really signal that reconciliation is on the cards anytime soon. We're not seeing a restoration of anything akin to diplomatic relations.
1: Nicholas, who are the people being freed from Iran?
2: Those coming out of Iran are five dual uh, American-Iranian nationals. There's uh, Siamak Namazi, Imad Shagi, Murad Zappaz, uh, and two others who've chosen not to be named. They've all been jailed on charges of espionage. They've served quite significant stints in Iranian jails. Siamak Namazi is probably the best known. He's been held for the longest. He was arrested in 2015. He's a businessman who traveled uh, to Iran and never left. At one point, he was being held together with his father who had gone to Iran to try to release him. He and uh, the others had been held in Avin prison, the notorious jail in Tehran, well known for mistreating its inmates. They were released from incarceration last month and placed under house arrest. So that was a sign that there was some deal that was afoot. And then on Monday afternoon, they boarded a plane for Doha, the capital of Qatar, and they're now being uh, held in an American facility before flying on to America.
1: Now, what's America giving up in return?
2: The Biden administration has come in for quite a bit of flack. The United States says it's uh, releasing five Iranians, some of whom have been held in American jails. Two of them are expected to return to Iran. The rest don't want to go back. Some of them are said to have been jailed for non-violent crimes. But what's really got Biden's detractors irked is the fact that America is facilitating the return of $6 billion of Iranian oil revenues that had been frozen because of uh, American sanctions in South Korea. That money had been held in South Korea since 2018 when sanctions uh, on, on Iran were tightened by the Trump administration. And in recent days, America has worked to create a path for South Korea to release that money. It's found a kind of complex mechanism for that transfer of that cash from two Korean banks um, via Switzerland to Qatar and then for onward transfer to Iran. Republicans in America have been saying even before the deal was finalised that any money transferred to Iran would be considered a ransom. But the White House has replied by saying that there are rules that will only allow Iran to use the money for strict humanitarian need.
1: Why is this happening now?
2: It's taken many months to negotiate this deal, but there are a lot of converging events that are happening. Iran is cash strapped, got very high rates of inflation, and it needs to find a way of shoring up its succession and getting international buy-in come the day when the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who's now in his mid eighties dies, and it wants to ensure that the world is on board with that succession. And I think perhaps most importantly, it's got to find a way of dealing with a a deeply disgruntled population. It's very nervous that external actors could lend support for a protest movement that really shook the regime a year ago after the death of Masa Amini, a young Kurdish woman who'd been detained for showing a bit of hair beneath her veil. And it's those kind of protests that continued for months that led to the death of over 500 the regime has managed to get on top of, but it fears that it's only going to be a matter of time before there's yet another round of protests. Each round of protests has grown in intensity and the regime looks unnerved.
1: And you mentioned this $6 billion in assets that's going to be freed up. but That's not that much money for a country with the kind of oil resources that Iran has. Is it so financially troubled that it needs to do this in order to function?
2: What's important for Iran is that this could set a precedent for unfreezing yet more of its oil revenues that are being held overseas. And perhaps, you know, even more significantly, finding a way of dealing with American sanctions and reengaging with international banks. It's significant that this is money that was held in South Korean banks that found its way to Qatar and on to Iran. And if this is a way in which Iran can start again to deal with international money markets, then I think this is giving hope to the regime that there may be a way back out of American sanctions and towards re-engagement with the world.
1: Nicholas, how many other Americans are being held in Iranian prisons?
2: We know that there are about a dozen Westerners that are being held in American jails, and there are probably several dozen more dual nationals. As far as Iran is concerned, this is future leverage. In fact, it's telling that there are reports that on the eve of The announcement of this prisoner swap, another dual national was arrested in Karaj, a city west of Tehran. So it doesn't seem as if the regime at the moment is in any mood to give up its practice of holding foreigners to press its demands.
1: So, where does all this leave the US Iran relationship then?
2: It's certainly not hardening, but the countries aren't allies and they haven't had a formal diplomatic relationship since 1979. Barack Obama, the former American president, talked with one of President Rice's predecessors and negotiated the nuclear deal. But then Donald Trump pulled America out and withdrew from that deal. And since then, relations have just been terrible. America killed a top Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, in Baghdad, who was really a kind of linchpin of the Islamic Republic. There's still tension uh, between American troops and Iran's network of uh, militias across the Middle East, particularly in Syria and in Iraq. Another key bugbear are the Shahid drones that Iran supplies Russia to wreak havoc on cities in Ukraine. And all the while, there have been these efforts to restart the nuclear deal Uh, The talks have come in fits and there's not really much sign of progress. But it's not impossible. that This prisoner swap could be enough to jumpstart some form of reduction in tension. I think we're going to see meetings between American and Iranian officials, direct uh, talks uh, for the first time. So although I wouldn't bet on this deal alone, catalyzing a revival of the nuclear deal, it could perhaps lead to talks about a smaller agreement But for the time being, what we're really seeing is just a transfer of 10 people and some money. So it's still kind of early days to assess exactly what's going to happen next.
1: Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure.
1: In case you haven't heard, we're making a few changes around here. Next month, we're launching our new subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. Don't fret, everyone will still be able to listen to these weekday episodes of The Intelligence. But to enjoy our full suite of podcasts, including our specialist weekly shows like Babbage, Drum Tower, and our incredibly exciting new show, The Weekend Intelligence, you'll need to sign up. If you're already an Economist subscriber, thank you. You're already covered by your existing plan. But if you're not a subscriber yet, listen up. If you sign up for Economist Podcast Plus before October 17th, you can get a year-long subscription for just $2 a month, which is half price. So come on, all the details are in the show notes.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move
1: People after a good deal on a mortgage are doing mental gymnastics. With high interest rates, it can feel like a circular internal debate of whether or not you should fix and how long for. The longer the fix, the more security you get that your mortgage payments will be the same no matter what happens. And while eliminating the anxiety and going for a forever fix might sound tempting, it has its own complications.
3: Whether or not you can fix a mortgage forever all depends on where you live. So, in a small number of countries, basically just the US and Denmark, this is what pretty much everyone does, and 30 year fixed rate mortgages are the norm.
1: Josh Roberts is the Economist's city and finance correspondent.
3: But in most of the world, fixed rates that last that long are the exception rather than the rule. And lots of countries are right at the other end of the spectrum. So in Britain, Canada, a lot of Southern Europe, for instance, rates tend to be fixed for just a few years at most or even not at all. And if you're one of these mortgage holders where your rate isn't fixed at all and just varies depending on where central bank interest rates go, you might have had a very uncomfortable couple of years because interest rates in many countries have risen a long way very quickly and your mortgage payments will have risen with them.
1: How do these forever fixed mortgages even work?
3: So to understand that, we need to look at how fixed rates are set. Whoever's lending to you, it could be a bank, it could be a building society, the bond market, whatever, is either borrowing the money themselves or they're choosing to lend it to you rather than to somebody else. So a bank would be borrowing it from their depositors and a bond investor would be, say, lending to you rather than buying government bonds and lending to them. The key point is that in both cases, they're giving up interest payments elsewhere. So the bank is paying interest to depositors. The investor is forfeiting the interest they'd have got from government bonds. So if they're going to lend to you at all, you need to compensate them for that. And that's what the interest rate on your mortgage does. Now, one option is that you pay them a variable interest rate that always matches the funding costs of them lending to you. But over the last couple of years, as we've said, the mortgage holders on these variable rates have seen their payments shoot up and probably aren't that happy. So the other option is a rate that's fixed for a set number of years, and the fix will basically be at the average funding cost the lender expects over that set period. Sounds great, right? But unfortunately, there are some major downsides.
1: Yeah, I was waiting for the other shoes to drop. What are these downsides? Tell us.
3: Well, the US housing market is showing us one of them at the moment, which is that people who locked in low fixed rates in the last few years when borrowing costs were really at rock bottom are now really reluctant to give up those rates. And that means they're not moving. And so America's housing market has kind of frozen up. Sales of existing homes have plummeted. And it's really only newly built ones that are available to buyers. So that's a big downside for policymakers to worry about, that long-term fixed rates can have unexpected effects on the market as a whole. But for mortgage holders, there's a more obvious downside, which is that a 30-year fixed rate might sound good and kind of safe, but you also need to pay an awful lot to get one.
1: What kind of payments are we talking about?
3: Well, we're talking about pretty enormously higher borrowing costs. Let's take America as our example again. The average rate on a new 30-year mortgage at the moment is 7.2%. And by comparison, the 30-year Treasury rate, that's the rate on 30-year government bonds, is 4.3%. Now, in places that go for shorter-term fixes, like Britain, mortgage rates tend to be quite close to government borrowing costs. So in America, we're talking about a nearly three percentage point markup to get the long-run fixed rate. And of course, that's an extra 3% interest every year for 30 years. It's a lot. Translated into monthly payments, it means however much you borrowed, you're paying an extra third on your mortgage every month for 30 years. So for a $400,000 mortgage, about the average house price across America, you're paying about $2,700 a month, and about $700 of that is the extra cost because of the long-term fix.
1: But if interest rates are already quite high, how much worse are these borrowing costs for the long-term fixed mortgages?
3: Well, you're absolutely right. So if your variable rate is already like 6.5%, you might not look at the 30-year 7.2% rate and think that looks too bad because you're already nearly there. But if you lock in for 30 years, you are kind of crystallising that additional interest rate over the really long term, whereas your variable rate at the moment might go down.
1: Josh, how popular are these forever fixed mortgages?
3: Well, in America and Denmark, very popular. Most people use them, in fact. But in other countries, this extra cost might be why they're so rare. The higher interest rate basically arises because it's much harder for lenders, banks, bond investors, whoever, to lend at a fixed rate in the long run. And governments could intervene to cap the costs they charge to do that. But that kind of just disincentivizes them from lending in the first place, so it doesn't really work. The key to all this, even if you're on a variable rate mortgage and your eyes are watering from how much your payments have risen in the last couple of years, is that the safety of a forever fix might sound good at the moment, but it really doesn't come cheap.
1: Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Hey,
0: thanks. I'm just looking for a table for one. Can I just start with the water, please? Recently, I ventured out to an Italian restaurant in the Burbs. Our
1: correspondent Rebecca Jackson has been eating out in Washington.
0: Do you like anything to drink for you? Ice water yeah. with lemon? Yeah. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. I'm seated at a booth in Olive Garden It's 6 p.m. It's a real representative mix of people. There's an Asian couple, a black woman in a bright red dress with a sleeve of tattoos, a Hispanic couple speaking Spanish next to me, and an elderly white couple chatting away a couple booths over. If you look beyond the restaurant's 1960s-looking booths and the unlimited breadsticks that Olive Gardens are known for, you'll see that the people sitting in Olive Gardens across the country really do look like modern-day America. The chain is an all-American favorite, But rather than just fattening people up from coast to coast, new research found that its branches actually serve a pretty unique social purpose. So, Rebecca, tell me a bit about this research. So there are two economists, Maxi Mosinkoff at the Naval Postgraduate School and Nathan Wilbers from MIT. And what they did is they used mobile data from people's cell phones to track where Americans spend their time. They matched people's movements to the socioeconomic data on the neighborhood where they sleep. That allowed them to see where the rich and poor spend their time and where they mingled most. What they found was kind of surprising, it turns out that sit-down restaurants like Olive Garden, Chili's, or Applebee's actually bring people together more than any other private or public institution. That means that rich and poor people are in the same space in these places more than they are together in bars, churches, gas stations, libraries, or even schools.
1: And why is that? Why are we seeing this at
0: chain restaurants over anywhere else? To better understand what's going on, I think it would help to get into the history a bit. It turns out that over the past several decades, America has become a much more unequal place. In 1980, 12% of the population lived in places that were either especially poor or especially rich. But 30 years later, a third do. Because neighborhoods are now so much more segregated, that means that Public schools are less of a melting pot than they once were. And colleges, where people actually leave their hometown, end up being a sort of socioeconomic sorting machine for adults. What that means is that low and high-paid workers who used to work in the same offices now really barely even work in the same sectors. And the high-paid, sort of madmen-type characters who used to marry their secretaries no longer really do. It turns out that now they're much more likely to marry fellow executives who have similar paychecks to them. But it is still the case that rich and poor Americans do come across each other in everyday life, at places like Starbucks or the post office. But an American from the top income quintile is actually extremely unlikely to come across one from the poorest.
1: Why is it so socially important that there are places where people of different backgrounds come together?
0: A famous political scientist, Charles Murray, got into this in his book, Coming Apart. He argues that over the past several decades, upper and lower class Americans have diverged so far in their core behaviors and values that they no longer even recognize their underlying American kinship. That bows really badly for the worse off. Raj Chetty, who's an economist at Harvard, used a data set of 70 million Facebook accounts to find that people who had friends across the economic strata, meaning rich people who had poor friends or poor people who had rich friends, were more likely to finish high school and earn a better salary girls were way less likely to get pregnant as teens. They found, surprisingly, that interclass bonds were more predictive of a young person's chance of escaping poverty than being a member of a civic organization or volunteering in a local nonprofit. So
1: we're seeing some of this at Olive Garden, where you visited. But Rebecca, are people actually
0: interacting with each other? Is it working? Yeah, that's a great question. So sitting next to each other in adjoining booths, eating the same chicken Alfredo, doesn't really mean that you're necessarily going to get the kind of kumbaya interactions that make cultural inroads. But The economists came up with a way to test whether people were actually talking to each other. They compared the encounters in their data set with the geography of Chetty's cross-class friendships. What they found is that the two measures were highly correlated. Essentially, what that means is that if your zip code has an olive garden, it's also more likely to be a place where people wearing suits and people wearing landscaping uniforms know one another.
1: So it sounds like chain restaurants are a good thing, then?
0: Yeah, exactly. Because they do so much social good, whether intentionally or not, you might expect policymakers to be embracing them. But it turns out that as municipal governments push back on gentrification, they tend to try and stop places like Olive Garden from moving into town. For example, San Francisco went out of its way to make it harder for chain restaurants to get retail permits. Nonetheless, stock prices of Darden's restaurants, which owns Olive Garden and a bunch of other chains, We an all-time high in July. Those concerned about fraying American society should be cheering them on.
1: Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Aure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget Economist Podcast Plus launches next month, so if you don't already subscribe to The Economist, you'll need to sign up to listen to all of our offerings. It's going for half price until October 17th. Follow the link in our show notes to find out more. And we'll see you back here tomorrow.